The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. You've been tracking with us for the past few sermons. This will just be a bit of a review for you. But the doctrinal truth I'd like you to consider for a moment is this. Regeneration, God's work of regeneration, is solely the work of God. Or stated from another angle, we might say, man in no way contributes to regeneration. Some of you might be asking, well, what is this thing, regeneration? Well, to quote from one well-known and widely read scholar and theologian, Wayne Grudem, he says this about regeneration. We may define regeneration as follows. Regeneration is the secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. In another recently written systematic theology edited by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, they defined regeneration as this, the work of the Holy Spirit in creating new life in the sinful person. So this is regeneration. That's what regeneration means. To use my own words, I might just say that regeneration is the work of God in which he imparts spiritual life to a dead sinner. So by birth, every person is spiritually dead as they come into this world. Therefore, man desperately needs spiritual life, and therefore man desperately needs regeneration. And regeneration is a work of God. Regeneration is entirely an act of God. In other words, man does not impart spiritual life to himself, nor does man contribute to his own spiritual birth. Wayne Grudem develops this biblical doctrine further. He says this, In the work of regeneration, we play no active role at all. It is instead totally a work of God. We see this, for example, when John talks about those to whom Christ gave the power to become children of God. They were, quote, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And he's quoting John 1.13. Grudem continues, here John specifies that children of God are those who are born of God. And our human will, the will of man, does not bring about this kind of birth. The fact that we are passive in regeneration is also evident when Scripture refers to to it as being born or being born again. We did not choose to be made physically alive, and we did not choose to be born. It is something that happened to us. Similarly, these analogies in Scripture suggest that we are entirely passive in regeneration, end quote. Note here in this quote that Grudem references two biblical passages that we have touched on in the past. One would be John chapter 3. The subject there is the, the new birth or being born again where Jesus calls Nicodemus to be born again. And Jesus likens the new birth to being like the wind. Which, may, which, again, is, of course, entirely outside of man's control. We cannot control the wind. Grudem also references John 1.13 where John explains that regeneration or or the new birth is wrought by God. And he specifies that it is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. 
Going into more detail, MacArthur and Mayhew explain this in their systematic theology. They write, quote, In man's natural state, he's characterized by spiritual death. By nature, he's a spiritual corpse, entirely unresponsive to the spiritual truth proclaimed in the call of the gospel. For this reason, the natural man will always reject the gospel. For the things of the Spirit of God are, quote, folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, quoting from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Sin, they write, sin has so pervaded man that his faculties are completely corrupted by it. He is spiritually blind, for the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, quoting from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. They continue, when the glory of Christ is presented in the gospel, the, match, the natural man does not see it because the eyes of his heart have been blinded. He's also spiritually deaf. His ears are uncircumcised, and therefore he cannot perceive wisdom, grace, and truth announced in the gospel of grace. Still further, man's will and his affections are entirely disordered. Disordered. And he says he cannot perceive any wisdom for God. For as the prophet Jeremiah testifies, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. But then he quotes Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. In the exercise of his sovereign pleasure, God issues an effectual call in the heart of the elect. He powerfully summons the sinner out of his spiritual death and blindness by virtue of the creative power of his word and imparts new spiritual life to him, giving him a new heart along with eyes to see and ears to hear and thus enabling him to repent and believe in Christ for salvation. He effectually calls his people out of darkness and into marvelous light. This is the divine miracle of regeneration, or the new birth, end quote. They go on, MacArthur and Mayhew, to specify who the agent or author of regeneration is. They write, the author of this radical change of man's nature cannot be man himself, but rather must be the creator of all life, including eternal life, and that is God alone. Some other aspects of the application of redemption require believers to participate actively. In conversion, for example, through repentance, though repentance and faith are themselves sovereign gifts from God, we ourselves must turn from sin and trust in Christ. Though God grants faith, he does not believe the gospel for us. Similarly, through the Christian's growth and holiness, and though it is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God, we are called to avail ourselves of the means by which the Spirit sanctifies us, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and making every effort to supplement our faith with virtue. The work of regeneration, however, is unlike these other aspects of the application of redemption. In regeneration, man is entirely passive. 
God is the sole active agent in bringing about the creative miracle of the new birth, end quote. The same truth has been heralded down through the history of the church. For example, just to cite one, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as he's so sometimes called, on May 3rd in 1857 from the New Park Street Church in London preached this. He says this, quote, in, salvation, in the salvation of every person, there is an actual putting forth of divine power, whereby the dead sinner is quickened, the unwilling sinner is made willing, the desperately hard sinner has his conscience made tender, and he who rejected God and despised Christ is brought to cast himself down at the feet of Jesus. This is called the fanatical doctrine by some, but that we cannot help. It's a scriptural doctrine, and that is enough for us. Spurgeon then quotes from John 3, Except a man be born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Spurgeon continues, If you like it not, quarrel with my master, not with me. I do but simply declare his own revelation, that there must be in your heart something more than you can ever work there. I do, he continues, there must be a divine operation. Call it a miraculous operation, if you please. It is in some sense so. There must be a divine interposition, a divine working, a divine influence, or else do what you may. Without that, you perish and you are undone. For except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The change is radical. It gives us a new nature. It makes us love what we hated and hate what we loved, sets us in a new road, makes our habits different, our thoughts different, makes us different in private and different in public, so that being in Christ, it is fulfilled. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new." End quote. So in summary of all that, let me just say again, regeneration is solely the work of God. This is one of those truths so central to the entire doctrine of salvation that if you get this wrong, inevitably the, glory, the result will be that glory will be given to man. Glory will be given to man. With aberrant views of regeneration, man steals glory from God. Furthermore, with aberrant views of regeneration, many problems arise in the church. This truth about regeneration is a truth that really provides some helpful background to help us rightly understand the parable of the sower, which of course we've been studying. In the well-known parable, thanks brother, in this well-known parable of the sower, there's a common misinterpretation that is the rocky, the misinterpretation, the common misinterpretation is this, that the rocky and the weed-infested soils that are presented there are argued to be true believers. It's argued that they must be true believers because they, they accepted the gospel initially and they showed some signs of early life despite the fact that they never produced any fruit. Some suppose they're just simply fruitless Christians. But as you know, beloved, there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. 
Jesus told us that we would know true Christians by their fruit. And this means that there are some people who really make a go of Christianity. They profess to be Christians. They do some Christian things for a season, but later they walk away from the faith. These are the rocky soil Christians, or we might say the weed-infested soil Christians. In this life, they may come to reject Christianity, believing that they tried it and it simply did not work for them, so they discard their Christianity like a old, failed New Year's resolution, or they might just simply can be confused about themselves. They might think they are a Christian. They might even have been told that they are a Christian by a loved one or, or a parent or, or a well-meaning pastor. They might have been told, yeah, you're a Christian. But internally, spiritually, before God, that's not true. They are not true children of God. They are misled. They are confused. They thought they did the thing that would make them a Christian, and they certainly did that thing, whether it was be baptized or pray a set prayer or, or whatever, and they assumed that that thing then made them a Christian when it, in fact, it did not. It's as if they assume that they have fire insurance, but that fire insurance is no good. It would be like a man carrying in his wallet an insurance card as proof of his homeowner's insurance, putting great trust in what that card represents, but then when tragedy strikes and his house burns down, well, what's he do? Well, he pulls out that card and he dials the number of the insurance company only to shortly learn that it was all a scam, that his monthly checks that he's been sending to the Philippines will do him no good in this time of greatest need. So is the spiritual delusion that many people are under. They assume they are Christians without truly knowing and understanding what a true Christian is. If this is a surprise to you, then you need to take a hard look at Matthew chapter 7. Read Matthew chapter 7 and learn from yourselves right from the text. There will be professing Christians on the last day who stand before Jesus shocked by the reality when they hear Jesus say to them, I never knew you. And they find that they were, in fact, not a true Christian. They assumed that they had been regenerated by the Spirit of God, but they had not. This is the reality of the rocky soil professing Christian, or the weed-infested professing Christian. This is what we find again in the parable of the sower. So let's just refresh ourselves with this passage that we've been focusing on. If you would, I'd invite you to open up your Bible to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we come again to this parable of the sower. And just to refresh ourselves with it before we come to the later parable, let's come to Jesus' interpretation of this parable, which we find in verses 13 through 20. So look at it with me in your own copy of God's Word. This is Jesus explaining the parable to his disciples. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the, where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown in rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. 
Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful or it bears no fruit. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Again, the key truth here is that this fourth response, this fourth soil, represents the response of true saving faith, true eternal life-producing faith. When someone comes to honestly grapple with the truth of this parable and they see the importance of rightly responding to the gospel, then naturally they'll begin to fixate on that fourth response. And that, and that response will begin to haunt them and think about it. And they'll either begin to ask themselves questions asking, well, which soil am I? Am I a fruit-bearing Christian? Have I responded with fruit in my life to the gospel? For those who have sat under a superficial gospel preaching for a long time, learning this for the first time might present an unsettling feeling. You see, many people have never wrestled with the idea of personal assurance of salvation. Someone told them that they were a Christian, and that's simply good enough, and they've never thought to open up the Bible to look to see what it teaches about this idea of personal assurance of salvation. They didn't know that God has given us a whole book in the Bible to help individuals answer this question. That is the book of 1 John. This is, this is one way that someone might respond to the truth of the parable of the sower. Another way is to begin to look outside of oneself and to begin to think about ministry and to think about evangelism, thinking about ministering to others. Perhaps they'll assume it all depends on them. I need to make sure that my hearers respond rightly. So they might naturally begin to ask, when I share the gospel, what can I do to ensure that people respond rightly? What can I do to make sure my preaching leads to true conversion? Or maybe applied even in the own home, what can I do to make sure my children respond with saving faith? So naturally, they begin to come up with ways to jumpstart this work of regeneration. What could I do to make this gospel message more palatable? How could I subtly lower the bar here of what it means to be a Christian? How could I manipulate the response that is produced by the preaching of the gospel? Well, to redirect this line of thinking, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives another parable. It would seem that Jesus, being fully aware of our human tendencies, and uh, that, that we might come away with a false notion from the parable of the sower, he gives us another, por- another short parable to prevent, per- to prevent that very thing. So Jesus gives us a parable that illustrates the truth of regeneration. Look with me at it. It begins in verse 26. It's the passage we come today. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. It's a short parable, only four verses. Look at, look at it with me. And he was saying to them, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day 
and the seed sprouts and grows. How, he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This is obviously, again, a very short parable. It's certainly not as well known as the parable of the sower. Now, the parable of the sower is recorded three times in our Bibles, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Only Mark records this parable, this parable that we might call the, the parable of the growing seed. But it illustrates a beautiful truth, a truth that we dare not neglect. Now, note the opening four words of how this parable begins. It says, and he was saying, this may not seem very substantial to you, but this differs from the introductory words that Mark used in verse 13 and verse 21 and verse 24 where he said, and he was saying to them. And I think if we're paying attention, this seems to indicate that Mark here is presenting us with another parable that Jesus presented to the crowds. We know that Jesus taught in parables, plural, uh, according to verse 2 and verse 33. He taught the crowds in many parables. Look down at verse 33 and verse 34 just to be reminded of this. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So it would appear that this parable of the growing seed was a parable that was presented to the crowds and likely further explained to the disciples. But for whatever reason, Mark chose not to record for us Jesus' inspired interpretation of this parable, unlike Mark did for the parable of the sower. Mark there recorded Jesus' explanation of it. But for this parable, we are given no explanation. All we have is the parable itself. But verse 13 suggests that if we rightly understand the first parable, the parable of the sower, then we'll be furthered in our understanding of all the other parables. So perhaps Mark did not record Jesus' interpretation for us because he knew we didn't need it. After receiving that first interpretation, he knew that we could come to the meaning on our own. And understanding the first parable would, in an essence, unlock the meaning of the second parable. So from verse 26, we know that the parable of the growing seed in some way illustrates a truth of the kingdom of God. But it's important to remember that the first parable, the parable of the sower, also illustrated a truth about the kingdom of God. We see that back in verse 11. And as we've seen, the parable of the sower was about how a person responds to the word or how they respond to the gospel message. When someone believes the gospel rightly, they enter the kingdom, we say. Now, they are spiritual partakers of the kingdom. The kingdom will have a future manifestation on the earth one day, but when someone believes, they become kingdom citizens now. So speaking broadly, we could say that both of these parables illustrate truths about salvation. The kingdom of God in this passage refers to the sphere or the realm of salvation. So somehow the parable given in verses 26 through 29 illustrates the truth about the kingdom of God. 
And it does so through a very natural, normal scenario. Perhaps I should say a very normal scenario for an agrarian society 2,000 years ago in Palestine. All of Jesus' listeners would have been well accustomed to a farmer sowing seed. And with the seed slowly germinating in the soil and the plant pushing itself up above the earth, and they, they would have been familiar with the, the natural stages of development in the plant and then the culmination of that into a harvest. This was all very common. This is the normal experience of the growth process. But our, in our interpretation of Jesus' parables, it's often telling to pay careful attention to any features in the story which are either improbable in themselves or in some way are given undue or unnecessary emphasis. Well, there's nothing in here in this parable that's improbable per se. There is extra emphasis given on some things. In this parable, special significance is given to the, to the fact that the man who sows the seed and who benefits from the seed's growth actually contributes nothing to the growth and development of the seed. The farmer, or the sower of the seed here, simply sows and then he harvests. And anyone even vaguely familiar with farming would know that normally the process is a little bit more entailed than that. There's the cultivation of the soil, there's the eradication of weeds that spring up, but that clearly is not the point here. Such work has been left out of this parable. And that is all to place emphasis on the sower's inactivity, we might say. In between sowing and harvesting, all the sower does is wait. In Jesus' parable, there are really three expressions or three lines that seem to place unusual emphasis on various aspects. And these three expressions help us to understand the main point of this parable. Look with me again regarding how this parable opens at Mark chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. He was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. So consider first here the sower's inactivity in verse 27. This is demonstrated by the ongoing activity that's portrayed here of sleeping and waking. So day and night, night and day, the farmer seemingly does nothing. He sleeps and he gets up and then he does it again. And, and just note here the emphasis on his inactivity. Some might say, well, this is sure, sure seems different from any other farmer I know. All farmers I know work from sunup to sundown. This farmer looks like a, a lazy glutton. Well, what the farmer does throughout the day may be any number of things that we're simply not told, but that's beyond the point here. In relation to the seed growing, the point is, is that the sower does nothing. He just simply sleeps and wakes up. He goes to bed and gets up the next day, and the seed sprouts and grows while he's sleeping. The farmer is not reaching down into the soil to somehow pull up the seedlings from the earth. No, no, he simply does nothing. He, he's not even one by one pouring water onto the seeds. He's not flood irrigating the property. In this case, he simply does nothing. The seed sprouts on its own. That's the point. So this is the sower's inactivity. Note, secondly, 
Also, the sower's ignorance. Look again at verse 27. After going to bed and waking up again and again, the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know, the text says. Again, emphasis placed here. The sower or the farmer is unaware of even how the seedling comes into being. I don't know about you, but I personally can relate to that. I know that certain conditions must be met in order for a seed to germinate in the soil. The seed needs oxygen, of course, and you need some water in the soil, and there has to be the right temperature. But beyond that, I'm generally unaware of the physical process that awakens a seed to life. Perhaps there's some horticulture major out there who could explain this to all of us and explain the the mystery and the magic of this seed coming to life, but I'm largely puzzled by the growth that's here encased in this little thing called a seed. And so it is, I I assume, with most farmers. And for millennia, that's the way it's always been. People know that a seed placed in the soil will take root if conditions are right, but they don't know necessarily how. I've heard that some seeds have been found sealed in Egyptian tombs for 4,000 years that still spring to life when planted. We say, how is this so? I don't know. And I don't need to know in order to harness the power of a seed, this life-giving power contained in the little seed. But again, note the emphasis here. The emphasis is on the sower's ignorance. He does not know. So we have the sower's inactivity and the sower's ignorance highlighted. And finally, in verse 28, we have the seed's independence highlighted. Look at verse 28 with me again. The soil produces the crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. So the the key phrase in this verse is the words by itself. In the Greek, it's one word, automate. You can understand what that means. Automatically, we might say, by itself. Jesus chose a rare, unique word only found in one other place in the New Testament. And he emphasized it by putting it first in the sentence. He put it at the very first of the sentence to say, by itself, the earth produced fruit. So, uh, again, the key here, apart from any human intervention, apart from any human cultivation, the seed grows. Everything that is needed for the growth is already contained in the soil, the seed, the moisture, the air, and the result then is life, plant life. Meanwhile, what's the man doing? He's sleeping. He's doing nothing. Or he's doing any number of other things that do not have anything to do with helping that little seed come to life. The growth is automatic. First the blade of grass emerges from the soil, and then a little small grain casing begins to form, and then in time the mature grain develops inside that head or that casing, and then eventually comes the harvest. The farmer collects the fruits of his labor, or we might say the uh, the fruits of his inactivity. We see that in verse 29. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Harvesting is the natural culmination of the sowing of seed. So when the grain reaches maturity, or when it permits, the the farmer naturally goes out with his sickle, that long curved blade to cut and gather together the bushels of wheat. This is the culmination of this whole process. Now the farmer's back to work collecting, harvesting, 
the wheat. Now again, Jesus doesn't interpret this parable for us. Some have reasoned here that this parable must represent Jesus sowing seeds of the gospel, awaiting a future time uh, of the kingdom to come in fullness, or the kingdom to come in a harvest. Thus, the harvest would be the, the future coming of the kingdom in an eschatological, earthly sense. But I don't think that's the best interpretation here. There's nothing in this parable that would cause us to understand that the sower would represent Jesus. And actually, it would be odd for Jesus to speak of himself not knowing how the seed grows. Additionally, in the previous parable, as we've seen, in the parable of the sower, the kingdom of God does not uh, refer to the physical manifestation of the kingdom, but rather it refers to the sphere of salvation. And verse 13 indicates that there should be some continuity between two, the two parables. I think the key verse from that earlier parable is found in verse 14. Look back there again. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. The, the one who sows the seed, that is the sower, represents those who spread the word, who spread the gospel message. The gospel is the seed that is to be broadcast. And in the parable of the sower, only the fourth type of soil produces fruit. In the second parable, this parable of the growing seed, it is a, a zoomed-in look at that fourth soil. It's four verses that explain the process of growth from seed to harvest. And it represents how the seed of the gospel works in the human heart. When the gospel is preached, the seed is planted. For a season, that seed may lay dormant in them until conditions are right, when the Holy Spirit begins to draw that person to life and, and begins calling them to salvation. The, the word of truth and the spirit of truth do their work upon a man until the time uh, when harvest comes or when reaping comes, when that person is born again into the kingdom and they believe the gospel. But the parable's emphasis does not lie so much on God's work in the process of salvation. The emphasis in the parable is on man's lack of working in the whole process. Jesus gave this parable to emphasize man's ignorance and inactivity in the process. I mean, did you see that in the text? The gospel, uh, the success of the gospel message does not depend upon human effort or human ingenuity, but instead upon the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says directly in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus said. You see, Jesus knew that our temptation would be to credit the flesh with something by saying to ourselves, yes, God saved me, but I gave him permission to save me. Or so-and-so is a Christian because I convinced them that there was a God and then I shared the gospel with them. We say, no, the flesh profits nothing, Jesus says. The ESV, the English Standard Version, makes it even clearer. They translate that verse, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So the power of the gospel is the power of God. The sower just simply goes out and sows the word. That's our duty. That's our mission. We must 
preach the gospel and so broadcast the seed. We must witness obediently and expectantly watch to see if the seed will come to life in individuals. And when the seed finds good soil in a tender heart, on a heart that gets regenerated by the Spirit of God, then the person will respond in saving faith and exhibit spiritual life in their being. This is the process of coming to life. This is the moment of regeneration. And it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And clearly this does not depend upon the evangelist, but only on God who's chosen to impart life through the preaching of the gospel. For this reason, Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the power to awaken sinners. Thus, one commentator has written on this parable. He says this, The point of this parable is simple. In the same way that the farmer is not the power behind the regeneration of the seed, so also the evangelist is not the power behind the regeneration of souls. Human ingenuity, emotional manipulation, man-centered techniques, and market-driven strategies cannot create new life in the heart of a sinner. Regeneration is only the work of the Spirit of God. Though believers are called to faithfully proclaim the message of the gospel, they can take no credit when unbelievers respond in repentant faith. What a comfort this must have been for Jesus' disciples to hear. Perhaps that they were, they were concerned that the task of saving sinners rested upon their shoulders. Jesus countered that notion by reminding them that only God can change the human heart. Their responsibility was to faithfully preach the gospel message. Having done so, they could trust God with the results. The diligent evangelist whose message corresponds to the truth of the gospel can sleep soundly at night knowing that it is God who causes the growth. All the evangelist can do is proclaim the word. The rest is God's work and believers can fully trust in his sovereign prerogative. End quote. So I say amen to that. And really, this is just the same truth we see again and again. For example, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul puts it in his own words. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This passage has already been referenced, and I'm sure you're already perhaps thinking of it in your mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And look with me at verse 2 here. Paul is rebuking the sectarian immaturity of the Corinthian Church, look what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For, for when one says, I am of Paul, and, I am, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And now look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. God was causing the growth. Verse 7, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, 
but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And if I could, let me just emphasize verse 7 again. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. He's nothing. But God who causes the growth. God causes the growth, and man is nothing. And as a result, who gets all the glory? God does. The power behind this mysterious advancement of the gospel message is the power of God. That is the message of this parable of the growing seed. That's the whole message contained here. But because we are pendulum people, let me just for a minute provide a counterbalance to this truth. I believe these things are self-evident, but they're always just good to state out loud. So let me give you four things that this parable and this truth do not imply. And they all, for memory's sake, begin with the letter P. Now first, the truth of the parable of the growing seed does not imply that we should not preach. And I'm using double ne negatives here, forgive me. We this does not imply that we should not preach. Preaching is our duty. We must share the gospel. Mark 4.14, the sower sows the word. That's our duty. In the Great Commission, we are commanded to make disciples by preaching the gospel. And so out of obedience, we must faithfully preach the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone who will listen. So we must preach. Secondly, the truth of the parable, the growing seed does not imply that we should not persuade or even plead with sinners to repent. By this, I think we should, we should seek to answer the objections of those who have them. And those who have honest questions, we should try to answer them. And we should even plead with them to repent of their sins and believe in the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul taught this very thing. In verse 20, Paul writes, Therefore, we all are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We beg. We beg people. Plead with them. Please, repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. You must do that. That's what we tell people. So the truth that God is sovereign over regeneration doesn't cause us to stop preaching the gospel, and, and it doesn't stop us from appealing and pleading with people to believe in the gospel. Furthermore, it should not cause us to stop praying. That's number three, stop praying. When we come to recognize that God is sovereign over salvation, then more than ever it should cause us to pray to God. We should cry out in prayers asking God to save souls. Save them. That's what Paul did. Paul earnestly prayed for the salvation of his kinsmen in Romans 10.1. He says, Brother, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. Near the end of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be, God would be glorified. So God's sovereignty over regeneration does not imply that we should not preach. It does not imply that we should not persuade or plead with sinners. And nor does it imply that we should not pray. And finally, it does not imply that we should not persist. Persist in these things. 
Persist in our preaching or in our sharing of the gospel. Persist in our pleading with people to believe in Christ. Persisting in our prayer. We should persist in all these things. But when someone does come to faith and believes in the gospel, these truths keep us from stealing any glory to ourselves. There's a blessed ignorance in the preaching of Christ. It's not our duty It's not our power to create converts. That's the task of God. God does that work in the human heart. Our task is simple. The sower sows the word. That's what we do. We're faithful to that end, to sow the word. And so that's what we must do. That's our tasks as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, to sow the word faithfully, resting, knowing that God will do with it what he wills. That's the truth of the parable of the growing seed. Let's pray and ask, us, ask God to help us live in light of it.